Welcome to Imperfect World. I am your host, Christopher Hobson. During this project, something I have been really struck by is how prescient some of the critiques made of technology during the middle and latter parts of the 20th century now appear. A pivotal moment was the dropping of the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945, which really clarified and demonstrated the growing gap between, on the one hand, our technologies, and on the other, our political and ethical categories. One thinker who was profoundly shaped by this was Gunther Anders, dubbed the nuclear philosopher, reflecting the extent to which it shaped his thought. Anders is one of the thinkers that Elke Schwartz has been engaging with in trying to make sense of contemporary developments related to AI and automated systems. In this conversation, I speak with Schwartz about her work on the political and ethical implications of digital technologies, and together we think through and with Anders, Arendt and others in trying to make sense of some of the potential consequences of the world we appear to be sliding towards. Echoing Anders' concerns, Langdon Winner once warned that, in the technical realm, we repeatedly enter into a series of social contracts, the terms of which are revealed only after the signing. The political and ethical consequences of this dynamic form the basis of our discussion, which builds in important ways on other episodes. For more information, please check my substack, imperfectnotes.substack.com, and make sure to subscribe to the Imperfect World podcast series. I can be reached at info.hobson at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. You've done some uh, work engaging with uh, the German thinker Gunther Anders and think his, his thought and the kind of issues that he was working through, I think, engage really nicely with, with some of the issues that at least I'm concerned about. So I thought as a way of starting, uh, we could begin with this quote from Anders. Uh, the more complex the apparatus within which we're embedded, the greater its repercussions. The less we can see, the more diminished is our ability to understand the processes of which we are part or understand their implications. In short, despite being human-made and maintained, our world becomes increasingly opaque as it eludes both our imagination and perception. And so I should say this is him writing uh, about half a century ago, uh, so post-World War II, uh, but he really captures something, I think, which, which definitely speaks to uh, our contemporary moment and the ways that I guess the technologies are moving beyond our capacity to fully see or understand. Um, so could you perhaps start by just talking a little bit, maybe responding to that quote and also how Anders has helped you think through uh, some of the issues related to uh, digital technologies? Yeah, yes, of course. Thanks for having me. Um, so Gunther Anders for me is an extremely interesting thinker, and not least because he kind of, you know, he, he slipped into the margins of history when it comes to philosophy of technology, but he really was one of the first to take seriously the role and the position of the human in an increasingly 
you know, digitized or technologized uh, environment. Um, and the quote for the, that you just highlighted is from his book. Um, in German, it's called The Antiquität des Menschen. So the obsolescence of man. And in this book, he kind of advances three, three main claims or theses. Um, first one is he interrogates the relationship that we have with our products. And he says, we have a really uneasy relationship to the products that we make. And we, we get the sense that we are not pr products ourselves. And therein resides a certain type of shame. So he calls it Promethean shame, the fact that we are no match for the perfectibility of our products, and that includes our technologies, right? Because we can improve them perpetually, we can make better iterations, we can replace them. But as humans, we are not like our products. We are fallible, we are mortal, we are finite. That's the first problem he identifies. And I think a really important one um, that has repercussions for, you know, analysis of capitalism, but certainly analysis of, of uh, technological environments. The second thesis that he identifies, and this relates to the quote that you mentioned, is that the scope for producing things, creating artifacts and, and environments of artifacts, by far outstrips our ability to be able to imagine their impacts Right? to have foresight as to what it is we are creating and how we fit within these new product ecologies or ecologies of artifacts. And a consequence of that is that we are unable to take responsibility. Now, that comes uh, out of his concern for a new nuclear reality in the 50s. And he was really taken aback by the fact that, we, that anybody would want to produce an artifact that could literally annihilate the earth, the world. So he says, okay, well, let's look at this. Why are we doing this? If this can only happen or primarily happen because we've become so accustomed to producing things and making things, we don't even consider, we can't even consider the impact that they have and therefore we can't necessarily take responsibility. So he calls this the Promethean gap or discrepancy. And the third aspect that he advances is really a critique of progress as a core value in modernity, that we just assume that we should just, just because we can, we should also make every and any artifact or technology that we can dream up or think of. And I, these three theses, for me, reverberate or echo very strongly in our present and our digitally shaped uh, environment today. Not least because digital ecologies are so hidden, these infrastructures are so hidden that it becomes very difficult to imagine the impact uh, because we simply can't see it and therefore it becomes difficult to take responsibility for what we are creating today. Mm, yeah, there's there's a lot in those uh, three big uh, theses. I'm trying to figure out where we start. Uh, but with, I think, the first one of Promethean shame, uh, also implicit in that is this, I guess, how you understand the relationship between uh, people and their machines, right? And some of the the problems which come from comparing humans against machines. And I'm not sure if Anders talks about this, but certainly some of you know the other philosophers of technology do. 
is that one of the kind of developments we've seen is effectively the way that increasingly we come to use machine metaphors as a way of understanding humans and in the process kind of um, distort our understanding of what it means to be human uh, but then also create this inappropriate measure or standard for thinking about how we should be acting and how we should be uh, living and so rather than having uh, machines which are um, fitting to our humanness increasingly we you know humans should be made to fit with with machines and the standard uh, of, of machines um, and was this something Anders talked about or he doesn't necessarily see it as a in, in metaphorical terms um, I think he takes it further and his analysis actually goes a little bit deeper in some ways we've always done this right so there's a long human history uh, which seeks to analyze the human body and mind and functioning or make sense of our lives, basically, based on our latest scientific inventions or technological inventions. That goes a long, long way back. That's just how we make sense of ourselves and our existence in the world. He does take it seriously, though. He does take seriously, not necessarily that we use this as a metaphor, but that we are so deeply embedded in our ecology of artifacts and that we our, our subjectivities, let's say, have been shaped towards perfectibility because that's the ecology within which we find ourselves, an ecology of products and artifacts and technologies that we have but no choice but to fashion ourselves in the image of our products, of our artifacts, of our technologies. And we try to do that, and he talks about what we now would call human enhancement, Right. So trying to tune our bodies up, trying to uh, enhance our cognitive ability, uh, abilities with, with the technologies and within the technologies. But we always and inevitably fail at living up to the standards of, you know, shininess <laughs> that our machines set for us. But in his writing, it feels to me, I, I, I seem to identify almost a, a spiritual relationship that, that he points his finger on is that you know we we are making the technological artifacts that we are producing are deities that we first fashion in our own image in some way or another but now we are falling behind uh, and we are trying to live up to the standards in a way that always leaves us with a with an enormous tension um, because, you know, the, the long history of mankind means that the material matter that on which we, you know, uh, function hasn't really changed. Um, the fact that we suffer through life hasn't really changed, but our ability to suffer through life, given the standards that machines are setting with their smooth functionality, you know, frictionless ideas, expansive nature, means that the value of the suffering or being mortal or being vulnerable is lessened. And this is where the shame resides. It's something that we cannot resolve. Mm. Yeah, I've been thinking quite a bit recently about how it connects to questions of meaning 
you know, in in one sense, you can think about this kind of enlightenment belief or confidence in in science and technology almost superseding and taking on um, the kind of prior belief that we had, um, you know, prior religious beliefs, it has a similar type of structure to it. Um, And so in one sense, you can think about it as a new form of way of making sense of the world and also having um, yeah, this this kind of tear loss to it. Uh, on the other hand, I've also been recently reading the work of uh, Byung Hul and also Bernard Stigler, who both were kind of making the point that in a world of big data, where we have more and more data and have like an excess of data, we almost kind of end up in a kind of a nihilistic world where it becomes impossible to make meaning because there is there's too much there's too much data uh there's too much um and we we kind of get completely overloaded and we are are left in a situation where we're no longer capable of actually being able to um uh yeah make make sense of 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 what is happening uh, and yes, I've been kind of, I don't know what to make of it, but I feel like there are some really, really powerful dimensions in thinking about what role digital technologies play and how we think about and engage with the world. I feel like there are some really big questions related to meaning and meaning making and, um, yeah, spirituality and which, uh, uh, difficult to kind of nail down um, and don't match well with the frameworks that we use for normally talking about it. Um, But I also find it very interesting that you have people like uh, Jacques Ellul and uh, Ivan Illich, um, and then I think Anders, but who are coming at it from a very religious perspective. Um, Yeah, I I wouldn't necessarily um, put... Anders in the camp of coming from a religious perspective, that's more my interpretation in some ways. I mean, he, he draws on Greek mythology to, hence, you know, Promethean shame, the Promethean gap, to, to illustrate, um, perhaps, or to elucidate the, the tension between us mere mortals and, you know, the, the, the artifice of deity that we, that we create. Um, and that to me is very interesting. I find, for my own work, I find it very, useful to actually go back to the early thinkers of uh, technology as technology came up in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, right? So where the the origins of what I, you know, what we're now finding ourselves in, the cybernetic condition, kind of actually happened because I think there are some really extremely sharp insights um, at the cusp of that that sometimes is a lot more useful to go back to than drawing just on knowledge that is produced in the present where we already are so shaped towards, let's say, technological logics. So you mentioned that, you know, it's kind of overwhelming, it's all this data, and how do we make sense of this data? How do we create meaning? It's a really good question. Um, And 
in some ways, it's useful to think about what data is and what it is not, what it can do and what it cannot do. Data itself, I just um, captured points, if you will. They themselves don't create meaning. They don't themselves don't necessarily create knowledge, right? They're just part of the assemblage of the digital ecology. They're not everything. They're just a, a curated sets of information points or just collected points. They then need to be rendered intelligible. Um, and in the digital environment, that's happening through algorithms. And there's this wonderful book by Ed Finn called What Algorithms Want. And he uh, discusses algorithmic structures almost as a, well as an architecture, uh, almost like cathedrals, you know, in which we place a lot of hope for perhaps meaning making out of this raw data, out of this, you know, mess of just, you know, unintelligible points. Um, but of course, within these architectural structures reside certain interests and power and, and priorities um, so that some things are made visible and some visible and some things uh, remain hidden. So I think meaning making happens in relationality in relation to one another. And that is something that digital systems are notoriously bad at. They cannot understand meaning, nor can they reproduce meaning. Now, it can, of course, we can stand in meaning with our artifacts, but the artifacts themselves cannot produce meaning the way us humans do it because it is deeply relational and it draws on so much implicit knowledge and experience that that cannot be repl replicated. But what role in the hierarchy between humans and machines that takes, that's, that's really the question. And in some ways, we're seeing that the priority or the importance of relationality between beings becomes marginalized in favor for functionality, optimization, speed, and output. And, you know, this is not just a technological condition. That's also a capitalist condition in some ways. And Anders talks about this, the, the expansive nature and logic of the machine or the technologies that we are finding ourselves using or drawing on or being embedded within. So I found it interesting, and that's what I'm trying to do in my work, is I try and understand the logic of the technology in order to then find the limits. Because if we are just seeing ourselves as, you know, irrevocably embedded in a artificial intelligence future, we cannot make sense of the elements. We cannot make sense of the sub of how our subjectivities are shaped ultimately um, in line or not in line with technology logics. So thinking about the components, thinking about how digital ecologies work, what digital infrastructures are, what they draw on, what they leave aside, what they can, and specifically also what they cannot do, I think is is more productive uh, than panicking. <laughs> Put it in crude terms. <laughs> I I have to say though, when I the more I have reached it, the more I've researched on it, the more I've started panicking. But maybe, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I I think that's partly because. Uh, Coming from a perspective where I take very seriously um, the centrality of, of ethics and also um, part of ethics entailing the difficulty or perhaps impossibility of resolving certain conflicts or managing um, different uh, value systems and... Um, 
then encountering approaches which are perhaps it could be called like solutionist so this idea that it you know these are problems which can be uh, solved for and kind of taking a you know using just a crude description a kind of a programmer or a technical approach to questions or problems which cannot be solved in that way uh, so I came across a quote from the the founder of of DeepMind, with the logic being, you know, we solve intelligence and then use that to solve everything else. And so, there's, there's what we're working on is potentially a meta solution to any problem. And yeah, this actually. Um, it connects back to, to the you know these points Anders are making right because there's this incredible um, conf like you know like what we can do we should do um, and also this this sense of um, being able to um, resolve these these issues in a, you know technologically um, and. Uh, yeah, I've been um, struggling a lot with this because in a way, yeah, I think this is where I have panicked or been a little bit scared, The you know, the, the and I, maybe, yeah, this does ac actually kind of echo Anders because, you know, Anders is looking at the nuclear bomb and and really just being kind of shocked or overwhelmed with, how people could not be more um, scared of what it is and what it represents. Yes. Um, I, I mean, in some ways, I share your uh, tendency to be panicked. Although I have to say, the more I step back and the more I, I listen to discourses coming out of the technology sector themselves, I realize a lot of it is hype uh, and a lot of it is hyperbole and a lot of it is branding, you know, and a lot of it is to attract more money <laughs> for more projects. So the actuality of artificial intelligence and its utility, for example, the the pathway towards, um, as you mentioned, Demis Hassab is saying, let's solve intelligence is extremely rocky and always has been, right? So if we talk specifically about artificial intelligence, that has had such a long history of like spurts and winters, right? Where nobody was interested. There was no funding for artificial intelligence. And the current moment is one of extreme hype because there have been tremendous advances in processing power and you know the, the way you can make chips smaller and availability of materi materials and all that kind of stuff that's not to say that we are now on the cusp of solving intelligence certain philosophers narratives notwithstanding right i i think what is important and i, I agree here with you is that we hold a against these narratives, that we see those narratives for what they are, and that we resist this idea that just because the AI context 
is hailed as the next revolution, as changing everything, the story behind all stories, really the thing to kind of pursue and just get on board with doesn't necessarily mean, and here, you know, I'm with Anders as well, doesn't necessarily mean that we need, we should be doing this, right? Why should we be doing this? Just simply solving intelligence is not in itself a intrinsic moral good. Um, so the question also is, of course, what can we do with solving intelligence when we don't even have a clear conception of what intelligence actually entails, no less human intelligence, right? So in the context of ethics, for example, you know, there's, there's no way in which we can uh, address ethical issues, ethical problems, moral issues with technology. So no technological artifacts in place today or perhaps in the next 10 years will be able to do ethics as such. So we are a long way away, but we are using the vocabulary and the mindset and the thoughts and the ideas and the visions of a largely computationally inspired future, not necessarily a humanist future, but weirdly, there's also a human exceptionalism in here. Right, because it is a handful of like technology wizards who say we can do this, we can crack this with our technologies. Yeah, I think we're, I think we're definitely uh, on the same page because I, I think what I'm to maybe better phrase what I was thinking. I think what I am concerned about is perhaps less the capacity of these technologies at present and more. The, the the power of the narratives surrounding them and the way what they are promising is used as a way of rationalizing and justifying technologies which in reality um, do not and cannot live up to those promises and bluntly um, are uh, not particularly uh, good at the moment, right? And so instead of having um you know this this super intelligent ai we we basically have um technology which is very good at identifying patterns and very good at doing certain tasks but is also in many ways uh pretty pretty limited and 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 pretty dumb and is making a lot of approximations and and yes, I think I worry. What I worry about is is this gap between the promises on which certain technologies are being adopted and implemented, and the realities of the ways that they're actually operating and what they're capable uh, of achieving, and the you know the the risks that come with uh, basically using technology that is perhaps not yet fit for purpose uh, and interestingly reflecting on the work that i've done on nuclear energy i actually think there's a very strong pro artificial intelligence argument for being more cautious about this because you can make an argument that one of the biggest failings of nuclear energy is that because they basically got ahead of their skis and 
didn't have sufficient um, uh, kind of nuclear safety uh, protocols and practices, you have Three Mile Island um, and you have, have Chernobyl and then the fear and dread that this creates around nuclear energy basically removes this as a possibility as a form of energy production, right? And so the promise of nuclear energy, and if you go back to, you know, like the 1950s and the idea of um, atomic energy being, you know, a fundamental part of a better future, all of that gets ripped away because the technology wasn't actually rolled out in a way which was sufficiently safe at that point in time. Um, and so you could all you could even think of a kind of a future where basically if some of these technologies are rolled out too quickly and there's a major accident, this could actually lead to them being forestalled and stopped and in the process losing the benefits that that would actually come with them. Yeah, I think this is with uh, with any new technologies that is always the risk. I think there's a couple of things going on. One is that, Acceleration is the name of the game in our present times, right? And this too is is a is a condition. Well, it's a conditioning feature of, of digital technology or cybernetic technologies is that stuff happens fast, um, and that is seen as a benefit. So again, so perhaps seeing speed and speed of implementation and speed of rollout as a as a moral good in itself, right? This this question of progress becomes a question of faster progress in some ways. And in this is, of course, uh, an issue with warfare, right? Um, the rollout of uh, new technologies that then render everything a lot less safe, um, especially against the context of an arms race, which, you know, we'll in the midst of a, an ostensible artificial intelligence or military artificial intelligence arms race, which always raises problems of flawed implementation or, or implementation that happens too fast. And that just causes a lot more problems that are less easily identified than, you know, traditional problems, let's say. Um, and I'm not entirely sure to what degree, but my sense is, and I've written about this in a different context, my sense is that the ethos of the technology industry is perhaps in part to blame because the ethos of the technology industry is roll stuff out fast and fix the flaws later, right? So Facebook now Meta's motto used to be move fast and break things. And uh, Zuckerberg in an interview um, a while back said, look, we need to move fast. We can fix things later. It's about speed, 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 speed. And the logic of digital technologies very much also picks up this iteration of, well, or the ethos of iteration where you say, look, we're just going to do something, then we're going to learn from it. We're going to do something, we're going to learn from it. We're going to do something. It might fail, we're going to learn from it. But you cannot do that, of course, in finite human or in, in context of finite human existence, right? As in warfare or as in um, safeguarding potentially disastrous uh, nuclear facilities. Uh, so I think what concerns me tremendously is the question of speed, actually, speed and optimization as core values or core mandates, because it's very difficult to say, stop, let's wait, let's think about it without looking or sounding like a total Luddite <laughs> and then having to defend 
the pause and having to defend perhaps what might get lost in the pause, what what advantages, projected advantages uh, might get lost if you do stop and think and check and double check. So I, that is the thing that does concern me, perhaps in the same way that it concerns you, is that we are working along an ethos um, that is not that shouldn't be applicable for all areas of human life. Yeah, I think there's something really important here in terms of the type of values and priorities that come from uh, Silicon Valley and uh, the technologies and platforms they're developing and then also how that is then echoing and spreading to uh, other sectors. And I mean, just actually thinking about it now, um, you know, in the same way we can think about sort of the logic of, you know, neoliberalism basically spreading and taking over more and more uh, parts of human interaction. Um, maybe there's a similar type of process, right, where the kind of the lot, the, the, um, the mentality of, of Silicon Valley of, of, of disruption, of speed is increasingly um, coming to be seen as a paradigm for, for how uh, companies should be run, um, how value should be assessed and, and, and so on. Uh, I was reading a, a piece by Ted Chiang, the science fiction writer, um, talking about uh, the values of, of Silicon Valley, and he was he was talking about the he was the way that Elon Musk was talking about the risk of super intelligent and AI, super intelligent AI, and the way that it may um, you know basically optimize for a task like picking strawberries, or Nick Bostrom talks about um you know making paper clips right, and then basically repurposes the world to this task and in the process kills all the humans. And, and Chiang makes the point that basically um, these fears basically reflect a kind of a, a belief that basically AI will have a kind of a logic and thought pattern like Sil Silicon Valley capitalists, right? Which is all about um, disruption and all around, all about lack of, um, I guess, care for the full ramifications. And and Chang is basically saying, you know, one of the things he would define as uh, a measure of intelligence is stepping back and reflecting upon the ramifications of one's actions. And so, if you actually had a super intelligent um, AI they should be able to reflect back and realize that um, destroying the world in order to optimize for producing strawberries or making paper clips is not a good outcome. Uh, um, and so you sort of, and so he, he then, you know, he does a bit of, um, you know, psychoanalytics and basically says, I'll, I'll put the quote. So it's no surprise that Silicon Valley capitalists don't want to think about capitalism ending What's unexpected is that the way they envision the world ending is through a form of unchecked capitalism disguised as superintelligent AI. 
They've unconsciously created a devil in their own image, a boogeyman whose excesses are precisely their own. I think it's a, he's not, so I, I love his work. I mean, there's fantastic uh, um, ideas contained there. And uh, this fall, I'm going to, this fall, the next term in the, in the spring, I'm at the University of Heidelberg, and I'm going to look at some of these dystopian apocalyptic narratives that are coming specifically out of Silicon Valley, that are coming specifically out of the technology industry, because what you see is a dual thing. One is, you know, mankind might be ending, humankind might be ending if we do not develop and give into these new possibilities for speed optimization, uh, AI, you know, we need it somehow to solve intelligence in quotation marks. But always on the flip side is this other aspect of, but things might go horribly wrong if we don't control it. There's a, there's a bizarre tension here, um, but it, on both ends is some sort of eschatological or some sort of like dystopian apocalyptical uh, vision that only then ultimately you know, the tech technology elite is able to fix. Now, that does something politically, of course, but it is really a call, and I think this is an important call, to pause and think what the father of cybernetics, Norbert Wiener, in his later work, really he lamented, he said, look, we have a weird, and he said as a particularly American um, obsession with know-how. We're so fascinated by it creating technologies, figuring out how they work, you know, uh, just like so technically minded. But that goes in favor of thinking about knowing what for. So the prioritization and thoughtless prioritization of know-how over what is this even for? What can it do for us? Similar, Hannah Arendt, was her core question, uh, an ethical and political question is, what are we doing? in relation to one another. Günther Anders, same, same question he raised in the same time period where he said, we are basically, you know, uh, prioritizing what we can make rather than the fundamental human characteristic of needing to relate to one another in a meaningful fashion. Here we come back to this question of meaning. So, you know, making stuff, knowing how to make stuff eclipses, if you will, the possibility for relating to one another. And with that comes a question of responsibility, of course, as well, responsibility for our own actions, but also responsibility for the products that we are making and what impact they have in a relational kind of context. Um, which is, again, you know, I, I completely agree. It's it's It has absolutely eclipsed, the, the fact that we can make stuff has completely eclipsed the question, what for? Like, you know, what kind of political values can be achieved? And you see it, of course, with Facebook and you see it with the last decade of social media and the, the life it has taken on of its own without anybody perhaps fully being able to foresee in Anders' terms, right, vorstellen, what kind of consequences might be the upshot, which is, you know, ultimately an, a, a version of democracy and undermining of, of, of agency and just a kind of like a hystericized dis public discourse. Um, so again, taking a step back and thinking about what we produce things for rather than following a, a sort of like a quasi-moral mandate of just making stuff 
is I think an important, uh, you know, word of caution. I think we should take seriously. Yeah, this question of just because we can does that mean we should? And mm -hmm. there, and this also connects to these questions or these points about narrative, because there's this very powerful narrative of inevitability. Right? So these technologies are here; they're coming. Uh, they are going to reshape uh, our society. They're going to re, you know, reshape what it means to work, reshape our labor force, and so on. And and the framing of it as inevitable really uh, removes the extent to which there are choices being made about uh, whether we want or need um, these technologies and and these developments. Uh, it's interesting, eh? another parallel, like in the back of my mind, I was remembered, uh, I was remembering this really famous line from Oppenheimer when being asked in um, a congressional uh, meeting about the, um, you know, the creation of the atomic bomb. And he's saying, you know, when something is technically sweet, then you're going to make it and you'll deal with the consequences later right mm -hmm. and so you so you have the lure of the technically sweet and uh likewise there is this you know pre, you know if we can make it then we should make it mm. and this real lack of reflection and this is what i find very interesting now with some of the discussion you're seeing around say facial recognition software so at the beginning, the arguments are, look, the facial recognition software is, is not very accurate, right? So it doesn't, it doesn't do a good job of picking up, you know, maybe people with darker, darker skinned um, faces, right? But then the discussions move to actually, well, do we want um, facial recognition software that's more accurate? And, you know, do we even want this technology? Do we need this technology, right? And... Uh, maybe we just don't need this technology or maybe we don't need uh, this technology at this price. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And again, coming back to these kind of earlier, earlier thinkers, uh, uh, Neil Postman has this question of, of saying not only what does a technology do, but what does a technology undo? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. And so I think this is another way of thinking about the potential ramifications and potential costs, right? Because it will produce certain political and economic and social consequences in good and uh, bad ways. Yeah, yeah. I think for me, that is the major concern because um, it is really easy to kind of get carried away with the critique of the technology itself um, and miss out on the fact that I mean granted human life changes right things don't stay the same and that's that's a, a fact of life we find ourselves in different contexts um, with different technological and scientific infrastructures and mindsets that's fine but the question of what gets lost that is perhaps desirable for a cohesive society, for a, 
you know, plural politics for a uh, just a larger or smaller communities that are not discriminatory. You know, what gets lost in, in being able to achieve that is really important. And I think it's a question that's very often overlooked, right? So what do we as humans, as flawed and awful as we might be, have to offer to make our context better that technology will just take away, right? And digital technologies and those types of technologies, including facial recognition systems, are designed for speed and optimization and efficiency, but also often for convenience, right? And I think this convenience factor is important because it makes us submit to this convenience, right? That they're designed to be alluring because they take tasks away from us. But with that, they also take tasks away from us that are perhaps important in creating a coherent and cohesive social fabric um, that is sustainable. And you know, increasingly, we see that the ability to try and relate to one another and solve conflict like it's like even small kind of uh, arguments and disagreements in a productive manner seems to be getting lost. And then I do wonder what happens to this quintessential aspect of, of political engagement through interaction, through relating to one another, through speech, through language, rather than emoticons and signs and code. You know, what happens to that ability? What kind of future are we producing if we lose this rather fundamental human ability to try and relate to one another, um, however conflict-laden that might be, um, but it is a foundation for social and political life to continue in a you know reasonably frictionless manner. Yeah, on the convenience point, I've increasingly come to think, you know, instead of talking about big tech, we should talk about easy tech. And... Mm -hmm. You know the, the the way convenience works is is really dangerous and and problematic because it it kind of pushes you towards not thinking and also pushes you towards towards these technologies then becoming part of the background and not being conscious of. Uh, how they're operating, mm -hmm. um, and and yeah, I think this is yeah one. I think one of the things which which strikes me as uh, problematic about the the you know the trends we've been really seeing over say the last 10, 15 years, where you have the acceptance of all. Of the of the ways that you know, say for instance, social media works, the way that um, you know algorithms are, are presenting information to us and shaping the way that that we're communicating, and as the, you know, over time, we the the benchmark over what is normal has been shifting. Uh, and so the point we are at now is, is, is already at a point where um, a lot of our autonomy to determine how we are receiving information, um, what information is, is being prioritised, uh, 
has it's, it's not it's out of our control. It's also out. It's 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 not fully controlled by um, state authorities either. Uh, and and so we're kind of drifting towards um, a situation which perhaps nobody really wants, but we we kind of you know except for the the corporations who are pushing us in that direction so maybe pushing right it's kind of pushing and drifting mm. yes. uh, <laughs> but collectively it's drifting, drifting in a in a current that's been produced somehow <laughs> yeah but and but you know the point is that then we actually end up somewhere um quite different Right, um, and even we can think also about the way that the pandemic has also um, sped up a lot of um, the shift towards uh, moving a lot of services uh, online and digitalizing them, uh, and and the more that this then become you know these technologies become backgrounded. Uh, the less the less kind of conscious and aware we we are of them, and I feel like one of the really big challenges is to find ways to foreground it mm-hmm. and to be more conscious and aware of the way you know the, these um, technologies are influencing our thought and our behaviour. Yeah, it's it's challenging though because uh, so I teach a course at my university uh, on technology politics and technologies of war, and with every new cohort of students that I have the pleasure of teaching, I realize how much more deeply the students are involved in these digital or or embedded in these digital ecologies to the point where everything is on the phone. You know, from the blood glucose measuring app to banking to just absolutely everything. Um, and there's an enormous reliance on this. Not, I mean, also again for convenience, um, not really understanding or realizing how that affects agency, perhaps, right? So this is one question of agency and responsibility that I'm very concerned with, right? So to what degree is our ability to understand what we are working with just so compromised that we would technically be rendered entirely helpless if it all crashed tomorrow, but also our ability to take responsibility for perpetuating these kinds of, uh, let's call them, like webs, you know, like we're in this web, we're sticking to this web, you know, not really with a clear outlook as to how they make our lives better, right? So I I asked a a young man the other day what he likes about the internet, and there wasn't really a clear or coherent answer to that, you know, it was just like, well, you find stuff, well, it's the internet, you can watch things. (laughs) So, but I, I am concerned about the critical faculties that perhaps also go missing uh, the more we become embedded and the more we become so used to outsourcing uh, our, our ability to know things or to find things or to understand the world. And this is before we have even talked about the metaverse, which, you know, <laughs> creates its, its own challenges uh, in many ways. But it does, you know, it does 
for me, always come back to the question of responsibility because everything is so diffuse, networked, and rather invisible. It is tough for anybody to feel they are responsible for a particular consequence of an action that is technologically mediated. And that includes the engineer that produces maybe a flawed algorithm for a facial recognition software uh, technology, but that includes us as well in perhaps having a better understanding of how we are actually truncating our ability to relate to one another, to relate to one another in a non-technologically mediated or non-digitally technologically mediated environment. I mean, everything is technology. So, you know, we're always embedded in technology, but digital technologies have a particular logic uh, and we have a particular relationship to them that, yeah, removes us from agency and action. About responsibility, I really, I feel like this diffusion of responsibility has really been one of the dominant motifs over the last couple of decades. And, you know, I'm thinking out loud here in terms of you kind of have these uh, different or related trends interacting. Right? So you you have the, the rise of uh, neoliberal economics and neoliberal governmentality, which has this um, sort of dif diffusion and disavowal of responsibility um, and also the dominance of a kind of a market mentality everywhere, which is also a way of kind of, um, you know, not, not thinking about uh, kind of responsibility. You also have that then interacting with uh, globalization, which is simply um, making the webs much more uh, complex and complicated and and bigger, uh, which also uh, makes responsibility more diffuse. Right. So, if, uh, you know, I know with my students when we talk about things like, um, uh, you know. Uh, structural violence and global extreme poverty. It's it's very easy to understand that there is a kind of a causal web in terms of we are part of these um, global economic structures which result in groups of people um, being in very uh, vulnerable positions and experiencing harm, and we can understand how we are connected up to that but then it's very hard to feel a sense of of responsibility for that or what type of responsibility we should feel and then you have this other trend then of technology you know uh, the, the the changes we've had with digital technology as well um, further complicating these these kind of issues of responsibility partly as you say in terms of the mediation so who you know is it is it the the company is it the uh the programmers it is the people or the organizations using these technologies um but at the same stage i feel like with all of these questions there is also this kind of disavowal right um mm -hmm. it is still possible i think to identify uh um, some organizations or some actors being more or less responsible. 
Yeah, I, absolutely. I think that's that's key, actually. In fact, responsibility or lines of responsibility and or accountability don't disappear uh, as a fact, right? Mm. But they disappear as a visible attribute, perhaps, that somebody should take seriously um, because these structures facilitate that. Yeah, so I, I, and I think this is actually to connect it to a rent. I think one of the really powerful things about a rent with judgment is, you know, judgment also involves risk. And, and I, I feel like uh, the moment we're at at the moment is, yeah, in a way, judgment is kind of difficult, right? And there is, I, I don't quite know how to quite voice it, but this disavowal of responsibility, I think, is also connected to this discomfort of, of judgment because, in a way, judgment involves saying, I think this is wrong or I think that is, that is, that is right or you should not do that all. Um, and the, the current moment is, is one where there are a lot of social pressures which kind of um, mediate against that way of, um, of, of, of thinking and judging. I think it comes from, I've been thinking a lot about this. Um, so in some ways it relates to a couple of things. I absolutely agree. So for me, it comes back to the ability to relate to one another. And that is sort of intention with a very modern ethos of seeing the world and our own action in terms of probabilistic thinking, right? So what are the probabilities of this being right? What are the probabilities of this being wrong? And with every probabilistic thinking, comes the desire to mitigate risk. What Arendt is saying, and I find that very interesting as well, is that it's not just that you cast your judgment. The risk resides on your judgment being either wrong or rejected, right? It's a relational thing. It's You're not judging the sky is blue. You're saying, I think what you are doing is wrong. It's an ethical question. But it's a relational question because it is an ethical question or the other way around. Um, and it requires that we take the risk that we might be wrong or that we might be pushed back against. And that also requires on the flip side, and she writes about this, the ability to forgive. Right? First of all, you need to trust and you, there has to be some sense of the ability to forgive. The risk resides in the fact that we don't know what others do. And that's by virtue of us granting other humans not the status of objects against which we render a judgment, but of subjects which have their own autonomy. And so that is a little bit undermined, especially with a social media context where things that tend to just sort of be lobbed at the void or at some artificial entity or, or virtual kind of um, a context, but without a relational acceptance that encompasses risk and potentially also forgiveness and, and the understanding that in an always unpredictable interrelational kind of context, we um, need to trust one another that we're going to be kind of at least treating one another with some modicum of respect. Now, that doesn't guarantee that that's happening, but it's a sort of an, an understanding that underpins the ability to relate to one another. And that becomes easier when the, the context within which we relate to one another is shared, 
right? And in some ways, I, I agree with you. I think in a global environment, a global context, becomes really difficult to see the horrors that unfold in any kind of war, maybe in a distant territory, maybe in a closer territory, and understand what kind of responsibility one has or should feel, right? Responsibility isn't just a formal thing. It is something that we feel the weight of. And that was good to Anders' point as well. We need to feel the responsibility of these actions and the products that we produce. And that becomes increasingly difficult because of an unwillingness to accept unpredictable and with that unpredictability and with that risk. Yeah, it's interesting. We've we've ended up in a world where um, yeah, risk is, is 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 in some ways so so central, uh, but in a way we've we've kind of become so desiring to be able to predict and control uh, and uh, estimate outcomes. We've actually ended up in a world where we have very low tolerance for risk. Uh, also, in terms of relationality, I was thinking as well about, and I guess this, this also connects to probabilistic thinking, but you know, one other development of the last couple of decades has been the, the increasing prominence of the logic of game theory and using game theory as a way of modeling behavior and and the quote-unquote promise of game theory right is to be able to cooperate without trust <laughs> or to find solutions without trust um and for proponents of game theory, this is seen as being a very productive way because you don't need to worry about trust. Um, whereas I've always sort of wondered, discarding trust as something of, of meaning and significance, you're losing something uh, really powerful, important, and... You know, I, I I find this a very um, sort of funny contradiction when it comes to say cryptocurrency, because cryptocurrency is supposed to be built around lack of trust, but then actually crypto crypto you have these incredibly strong communities within crypto where actually there's a high degree of trust. Right, and there's a, there's sort of a uh, like a a bit of a contradiction there, but I think what you're hitting on is is really powerful in terms of uh, you know these things kind of go together as a package, right? To be able to take risk, there needs to be trust, and there also needs to be space for forgiveness, right? But where you have low tolerance for risk, you also have low tolerance um, uh, for forgiveness, and then you also have um, low willingness to take on responsibility. Uh, so I mean, I'm I'm Australian, and uh, our prime minister has turned uh, avoiding responsibility into an art form. Like he's really. Um, well, here in the UK, we have a we have a similar condition at present. <laughs> right. um, yeah. So I think it's interesting. We've got these kind of packages. Right, uh, and the 
the challenge then is, is effectively how to, I guess, find packages of values which are going to uh, lead to not only technologies, but then also just kind of human interactions and relations which are yeah, more, more humane. Yeah, I think that's really the challenge. And, and you know, to come back to Anders once more, he, that's what he was calling us to do. He basically said, use your moral imagination, use your imagination, train your imagination, get as imaginative about, you know, what kind of futures we want um, and what kind of consequences we are producing with the stuff that we're just like churning out. Um, and think about how we can, like, you know, how we can produce a, a livable, enjoyable future for, you know, most people, let's say. And I think that we have some tools. I mean, wonderful stuff has been written on this this question of risk. For example, Ando Fumantel has written this book, I don't know where it is, um, In Praise of Risk, um, and sort of, you know, thinking about vulnerability. So I think it's up on us to think about what are the good things about our human relations and what works well that we should cultivate and, you know, not forget about. But also on the flip side, where are the limitations for technologies? I'm not saying, again, you know, every time I have a conversation about technology, at any point, at some point, I will have to say I'm not a Luddite. Or, you know, I am interested in, in producing technological contexts that work for us, that, that make our lives sustainable and better, not worse. Um, so the question then becomes, what kind of technologies do we want to develop, maintain, keep that enhance the good stuff about us? And where do we need to just simply draw the line and say, no, this, we're just doing this for no good reason. And it actually erodes those things that would make our political, ethical, and social life collectively better. But that's, of course, you know, you take time, it needs time for that. And that's what we're all short on at the moment. Yeah, there's, um, there's certainly this need for attentiveness and kind of conscious engagement with uh, you know, what type of technologies we, we want and, and how we want to engage with them. Uh, and then also there are then, you know, challenging issues there with uh, socioeconomic uh, equality. And so simply some people don't necessarily have those choices. Uh, I'm, I, I'm, I'm just consciously, I, I really, I really visibly see, uh, all the Uber Eats cyclists in Tokyo, uh, they're everywhere. And I just find there's such a, you know, such a strong example of, you know, the, these kind of really warped relations where we have people who are in socioeconomically weak positions not only kind of doing the bidding of um, a, a company which is effectively built its business model around uh, avoiding um, regulations and paying fair wage and things like this um, but then also being um, tied to an app which is determining how they should work and act and then also you have the the inequality of the of then the people who are using the app 
which uh, the the um, writers are responding to, uh, and and I think connecting to what we're kind of talking about. Well, then there is a choice, right? So just not using a service like that is quite possible, and exactly. it's it's not that big of a cost. <laughs> No, no, this is the convenience factor that uh, is just so overpowering at times, yeah, or feels overpowering. It should be really easy to say, look, I'm just going to walk down the road and pick that stuff up or something. Yeah, so the, the way that uh, convenience really is it's so seductive and what we take as, as the benchmark of um, an acceptable compromise keeps keeps changing uh, and and so, so simply like being being in Tokyo being in a place which has amazing public transport I, I don't have a car and I don't think about the problems of having to uh, walk and take trains and, and and take buses because it's there and it's available uh, and but if I had a car I'm, I'm sure I would be jumping in the car to to drive 10 minutes, whereas now I'm very happy uh, to, to walk. So I feel there is this, um, there are things we can certainly do as as individuals to be more, be more conscious and, and be more aware of uh, the, the choices that, that we're making. And uh, I mean, there are, ways that we perhaps don't have complete control or agency over what technologies we use or the conditions in which we use them. Uh, but there still is actually kind of a lot of scope where we do have uh, capacity to engage in, in, in different ways. Yeah, I think in, in, uh, in the, the picture is always complicated once you uh, take into consideration that we are not necessarily fully discrete and distinct from our technologies. In fact, they shape, well, it's a co-constitutive kind of affair, isn't it? It's not like we're using these technologies as an instrument, but we are prompted through certain technologies towards certain actions or they shape certain desires, you know, like getting the stuff that you order online the next day was not really a thing that anybody was concerned about <laughs> before Amazon came along, um, but but now it is. So it, it is an intricate relationship that we have with these technologies, and some technologies are designed to keep our attention and, and prompt us in ways that are subtle but impactful and always towards more engagement on the platform. Um, that's not to say that, you know, we can't take a step back and say, well, actually, do I need to do this right now? Do I need this product tonight at 10 p.m.? Or is it just because I can? And so this is the question of subjectivities being shaped in the image or in the in, with, within the logos of the machine, you know, or even the, the technology industry. Do we Should we do it just because we can? We tend to do it because we can. Um, but that is something where we kind of... You know, it takes a little bit of courage, perhaps, or a certain imagination uh, to say, I'm just going to take a step back. And interestingly, I think, uh, you know, it's not making us happier. 
to submit to the convenience. I think there's a threshold by which more convenience is good, but then there's a cutoff point. I don't know what this is or where it is exactly, but I would venture to say that it doesn't make us happier or it doesn't make us better people or it doesn't make us more fulfilled. And so being attentive to that, not wanting to center the human, but take seriously that we are humans, uh, you know, is perhaps not unimportant. Yeah, I feel at the moment there is certainly a growing unease with, with the way the world is structured, the way we are engaging with our world and, and more and more people sort of feeling a discomfort or um, looking for ways to better comprehend or make sense of, of things. Uh, but I, I do worry about this this sort of sense of inevitability and in the process, the way that we uh, do lose track of perhaps the scope of choice that we do have. Uh, I, as conscious as I am of the kind of the structural forces and uh, the limited capacity that, that we have for, you know, changing the way that um, social media platforms operate uh, or the way that search engines work uh, or the way that hiring practices uh, use um, certain uh, big data programs and so on. And to some extent we have to engage. Uh, I, I still feel I don't see how we can have a society that is more plural and more tolerant and more forgiving without individuals that are not more more open and more tolerant and, and, and more forgiving. And so that it strikes me that there has to be um, uh, in a process of, of, of uh, moral reflection and um, thought at the individual level like, uh, and and yet again with Arendt one of the things which, which really I take from her work is you, you know when she's talking about some of the some of the Germans who chose to resist and so she's contrasting these against Eichmann and her point is that, you know, these 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 uh, members of the Nazi Party who chose to resist, they didn't know if their actions would be successful, and they could not know, and uh, it may not have felt like it was successful, but still, uh, you know, it was the right thing to do. And she sort of says, well, if more people had acted like that, well, then maybe we would have had a different reality. Uh, and, and so I sort of come back to the macro has to be made up of the micro. And in some ways, perhaps that takes us back to um, this question of panicking, actually. And maybe panic is not a bad thing. And here I come back to Anders, um, who uh, in uh, 11 Thesis for the Atomic Age, he wrote that we should be fearful, right? Not, not like nervous fearful or not fearful, but he says it should be a loving fear, not fear of the danger 
that's ahead of us, but for the generations to come. So perhaps this, this unease that we feel needs to be the first impulse or igniter, if you will, for a more profound change that can then perhaps ripple through, right? You say it comes from the individual, but it obviously needs to be present in the collective for it to, to make a difference. That was my conversation with Elke Schwartz, recorded in March 2022. It was produced with support from a grant by the Toshiba International Foundation and was edited by Peter Van Hosen. Please subscribe to the Imperfect World podcast series and check other conversations. For more information, see my website, christopherhobson.net, and my substack, imperfectnotes.substack.com. My email is info.hobson at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Imperfect World with Christopher Hobson.